to begin today uh, a quiz. I mean this term in the non-sexist, non-gendered version of it. Uh, but what's the threshold you need to pass to be considered a groupie or a like, total fanboy for a particular musician? <laughs> Give me some numbers here. Shout it out. Number of shows. Okay, there you go. Come on. It's, you know, it's summertime. You get the extra half hour sleep. Number of miles following. Okay. Less than a thousand miles, okay. Under it, over a thousand miles, you cross the threshold to groupie or fanboy status. Okay, anyone else? Anyone else? Anyone else? Never done it, okay. <laughs> well, I don't think we've established the full threshold, but I don't think I've reached it, but I've come close with this guy over the last year. That is Jason Isbell. His band, The 400 Unit, I saw them last Monday night with, I think, eight other members of Wellsprings, some of whom I am pretty sure became Jason Isbell fans because of my amount of yammering and fanboying about Jason Isbell over the last few years. Six times in the last few years, pretty much every time he's come to Philadelphia, and really it would have been a seventh, but I had the flu. The intention was there. Now, I got to tell you, uh, Jason Isbell is one of my favorite artists. His 2013 album, Southeastern, about his descent and his recovery from his addiction is one of my most important, most favorite albums. It ranks up there with, let's see, um, Husker Du's and Arcade, The Replacements, Let It Be, The Hold Steady, Separation Sunday, and, oh, this changes by the day. But we'll go with uh, Bruce Springsteen's Darkness on the Edge of Town. Add Jason Isbell's Southeastern to that, and you have my top five albums that I need to have with me if I am ever stranded on a desert island by myself. And if I'm with someone else, hopefully they lock my ty- like my top five because I'm listening to it a lot. So here's the thing I wanted to say. Just sounds, folks. It just sounds. <laughs> we can work with it, right? I was really excited to see this concert. And I liked it. Let's start from that threshold. I liked it. And I want to yuck anyone else's yum, those of you who are there with me. (laughs) Jason Isbell does a lot of the same songs from concert to concert to concert to show to show, layering a new song here and there from a new recording. It was a seamless performance. And by seamless, I knew exactly what was going to happen in pretty much every song before it happened. I enjoyed it. I love Jason Isbell. I will continue to go see him in concert as long as I possibly can. But I got to tell you, my favorite concerts are the shows where you don't know what's going to happen. The shows where something unexpected is emerging. The show where it's not a performance It's more like creation. Like a few years ago, uh, I've seen Bruce Springsteen more often than I've seen Jason Isbell. And I saw him a few years ago on uh, an incredibly hot, incredibly humid uh, Labor Day Sunday. It was like one of those days where you walk outside and you've just taken a shower and you need to go back inside and take another shower, just drenched in sweat. And, I mean, Bruce is a force of nature. He's now 67 and still plays three and a half, four-hour shows. And so he was in the encore during this show, and he took off his shoe, 
And he poured the shoe upside down and two cups of sweat water came pouring out of it. That is working with the moment. <laughs> now, Bruce is also disgusting, yes, but it's true. I don't go to shows to see the pre-side of humanity. I go to shows to hear something real. And Bruce, sweat, shoes, that's real. But it's more than just about Bruce Springsteen. It's about the concerts I go to where there's banter between the musician and the crowd, where they shout out a song the band hasn't done in a decade, and they give it a try even if they're tripping through it. So that was my objection, if you can count it as an objection, to the Jason Isbell show. It was seamless. And today, I don't want to talk to you about seamlessness. I want to talk to you about seamfulness, about the places in our lives where new things open up, where the not quite yet predicted or perhaps the impossible to predict shows itself, and then we have to work with that, not the planned stuff. So that's what the movie for today's Spirit Flicks is all about. It's called The Edge of Seventeen, and before I tell you who it's about, there's a few things in the movie that they show you early on about where they're headed and about the story they want to tell. It's set in a seemingly ideal suburb, maybe one that seemingly isn't that different from around here. And they show you a couple things that say, we're going to take a look at the seams. We're going to take a look at the ragged edges of things, not the perfect things. You see, for some reason, a basketball hoop where the rim is kind of cockeyed and hasn't been fixed in a long time. They show you a washer that has come out of a fixture in a bathroom sink. They show you these things because they're trying to point out something about their characters, that their lives aren't perfect, and yet they're not quite acknowledging how imperfect their lives are. The main character is this person, Nadine. She has just turned 17, and no, they don't play the Stevie Nicks song, but it was playing throughout your entire head throughout watching the movie. Nadine is not happy. Nadine has a difficult life. A few years ago, we see in a flashback, she lost her father, beloved to her very, very suddenly in a heart attack when they were driving in the car together. Her mother, a bit of a hot mess, a lot of conflict between mother and daughter. And in the middle, her older brother by one year, played by the actor Blake Jenner, who I guess is on Glee. They tell me these things. Who has it all together, seemingly. Perfect and good-looking and popular. And Nadine hates her older brother. And then she hates him even more, even more possible than she would have thought, when her best friend, when Nadine's best friend, and Nadine's only friend, because <laughs> putting up with Nadine is not easy to do, hooks up with her brother. <laughs> she makes them choose. Him or me. And there's nothing exploitative in the relationship. One is 18, one's 17. They've both freely chosen it. And her best friend says, you can't make me choose that. I really like him. He's a good guy. And Nadine says, well, then you're cut off. Nadine is jaded and cynical. 
And she is something that we see very often in this world that is a confusion for many of us. She is edgy, but she actually doesn't live on the edge. See, there's a difference. Sometimes we describe people as edgy. We'd say, okay, they're, you know, cutting edge. Maybe they're a little difficult or dangerous to be with. Maybe they are even a little scary. Maybe we think they're so far out there that they're pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable. But I actually don't think that has anything to do with living at the edges of our lives, of opening to the places of the seams, of moving beyond a seamless existence. Because here's the problem with Nadine. She knows how imperfect her own life is, and she thinks from that place of her own pain, of really her own arrogance, that everyone else's life around her is perfect. (laughs) And she is the only one who doesn't have it together. That's really the arc of what this movie is all about. It's Nadine's recognizing that her own pain might connect her with the other people around her, that just as imperfect and as seamful as her life is, is a bridge to other people rather than a barrier. This is the difference between being edgy, which honestly in this culture is pretty easy to do. (laughs) It's one of the reasons we confuse in this culture over and over again, arrogance and bragging with real courage. To be at the edge of our lives, to enter into those places of the seams where things are opening up, where very often what is sacred can find us, actually doesn't involve a lot of noise, a lot of sound, a lot of cynicism, a lot of edginess. The Quaker teacher Parker Palmer talks about this seamful living, this living on the edge. And he says, if we want to discover where the soul is, whether you consider that word metaphorical or whether you are committed to the soul as something real and true in a metaphysical way. If we want to discover the soul, the wildness within us and around us, the undomesticated part of who we are. He said, it's kind of like going out into the forest and wanting to spot a rare, precious, wild animal. We don't do that by being edgy. (laughs) We don't do that by making a lot of noise. We have to approach quietly and attentively and carefully. This is how we open to the places of the seams, the edge in our lives. If we are honest, and I hope we are, (laughs) if we're curious about this life, and attentive. We will acknowledge that life is rarely as it seems. S-E-E-M-S. Something is always happening that cannot be predicted. And that life is not a scripted performance. And if it's any kind of performance, it's improv. Life is rarely as it seems. And if we acknowledge that, for ourselves and other people, then we will come to know a deeper truth, which is that it's at the seams, S-E-A-M-S, at the edges of our lives, 
we will find that that's so often where the Spirit is waiting for us. Waiting for us to be attentive and to notice. And not to think we have to push the boundaries of things. Because the truth is, if we're open and attentive, the boundaries are always shifting and changing already. I love this particular story, and you can file it under a saying that those of us who were not raised in a Buddhist tradition but have been drawn to the Buddha way, the joke goes something like this, and I've experienced this a little bit in my own family of origin. Uh, My family can't stand me when I'm a Buddhist, but they love me when I'm a Buddha. (laughs) So this story is about this guy, Koshin Pele. He's the Zen priest in the robes. He and his husband are the co-founder of what's called the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. It's a form of hospice, working with, training others, medical professionals, spiritual professional types, counselors, therapists, to be with, to be at the bedside of those who, like this patient, are dying. That is an improv place, not a scripted place. I got to tell you, for the years, and it's 21 years ago now, we could tell the difference between the clergy members who went in with their their list of prayers (laughs) and their list of rituals and those who were able to go in there unarmed and open save for the intention for presence for those who are dying or very sick. That's living in the seams. Koshin Pele tells a story about his grandmother. He comes from a long line, long and proud line of uh, Jewish religious teachers. And so his grandmother started to pull back from him when she said he started doing that Zen thing. She didn't understand it. She was scared by it. It threatened, she thought, the lineage and the course of their family life. And there was a distance between them. Until in her 90s, she became very sick. And day after day after day, Koshin Paley went and spent time with his grandmother. Until a few months down the road, she said, now I get that whole Zen thing. She said, it helps. It helps you to be willing to be with me in a way that no one else can. Everyone else is so scared. And they just give distance. She said, I love this Zen thing. And he said, actually, that was the germinal moment, the seed of what became the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. Life is at the seams, at the edge, at the still forming places where we are called to be more honest, more genuine, more wise, and more kind with each other. Life is not scripted. It is always improv. And anyone who tries to sell you anything that says, here's the script, do not believe them. 
heard a great voice speaking to this just the other day. Actually, Reverend Lee called my attention to it from this person. Susan Frederick Gray, who as of last night at 5 p.m. our time, is the first elected woman head of the Unitarian Universalist Association. She was also the candidate who I favored and voted for. And I'm not very involved in denominational matters, and I have not been to our annual General Assembly in, I think, four or five years now. Maybe three years, actually. Three years. Reverend Lee went, and she was texting me what was going on, and there was a final candidate's forum that she thought Susan Frederick Gray said something really beautiful, wonderful about and in. There was a question about class bias within Unitarian Universalism and our propensity for classism or making distinctions, differences, and prejudices based on class differences within Unitarian Universalism. Of all the things that Unitarian Universalism struggles with, this is one of the things that's right there towards the top. <laughs> I'll give you one example of it. When I was in my internship congregation, some of you have heard this, and I'm still as gobsmacked by it now as when I heard it two decades ago. There was a study somehow that, I don't know if it was peer-reviewed, but there was a study that somehow said that Unitarian Universalist teens have the highest SAT scores on average than any other American religious denomination. And I was in a meeting with some other folks who heard this and genuinely thought that this could be the basis for a new marketing campaign for Unitarian Universalism. <laughs> And I was, well, we didn't say WTF back then. I didn't say the whole thing either, but that's classism. It went unchallenged. I was just the intern at the time. I didn't say anything. I wish I would have. Because my God, people. And Susan Frederick Gray's answer to this question was so pitch perfect. That's why uh, Reverend Lee pointed me towards it. She said it's beyond structures and beyond barriers, although it's about that. It's about our culture. It's about our culture as Unitarian Universalists, which I think we're moving away from here at Wellsprings. It helps to be relatively young, but we still have some of it here at Wellsprings. It's part of our culture as a whole, not just Unitarian Universalists. She called out with love our culture of perfectionism. Our culture of perfectionism, which is all about playing that we have it all down. We've got it all taken care of. And she said, really revealing the depth of her pastoral capacity, she says this perfectionism shows over and over again with trusting our competence rather than asking for help. Rather than asking for help. What she was talking about is the book I hope to write at some point in my life, which will simply be called The Seam-Filled Life. <laughs> When we show our seams, our stitches, our scars, the open places, the places still forming, when we do that, we open our capacity for real connection with one another. Beyond our images, our barriers, our definitions, what we find there is we find life. Ongoing and forming, and it's really easy, folks. Like it happened today when we were praying before the service with the band over there. The, they, they've exited, that's the music place in that classroom toward the, through there. Go take a look later. Um, 
they took all the, the musical instruments out of there. And what they've put, I imagine it's the camp who rents here also this summer, they put a circle of stickers all throughout the room. And just naturally, all of us started to find our place in the stickers. And the stickers are of gummy bears. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. <laughs> but if we're paying attention... <laughs> We will see stickers and a circle made of gummy bears. If we pay attention, we will see as well too within ourselves and especially even more around ourselves, the sad seams, the broken seams, the places that our culture has such a hard time seeing from the micro level all the way up to the policy level. Our policy is formed by and large by people who do not acknowledge the seamfulness of this life. And as a result, millions of people suffer and millions more people will suffer. This is why the seamful life, not the seamless life, is a moral imperative. Because it opens us to the great compassion of truly recognizing the suffering of ourselves and of each other. But it's not just about the sad seams, it's about the happy seams as well too. It's about the gummy bear circles. It's about the joy that cannot be predicted. It's about the kindness that all of us need, but sometimes are afraid to offer because we wonder if it'll be reciprocated. And so today I would ask you this. Know your seams. (laughs) Look for the seams in others as well too. Show your seams. Trust your seamfulness. Dance into your seamfulness. Join hands in your seamfulness. Trust the seams to point you to a life more abundant, more fertile, and more wild than any words could ever predict. May we all know and love in our seam places. Amen. May you live in blessing. Pray with me. Wild, divine. Before there were any books, before there were any words, before there were any prayers, before there were any methods, before there were any techniques, before there were any practices, there was simply this. There was presence. There was life always coming to be, never fully formed, waiting for us in the moment. And all the words, all the scriptures, all the practices, all the techniques, they're not wrong or bad or off, but they're not the whole game. So may we see pointing beyond all the practices, all the techniques, all the words, all the prayers. Pointing to that beautiful, wild, full, undomesticated life that we have always been. And each of us always are living into those seamful places. May our lives become more holy, more sacred, more, more wakeful. Always making mistakes, folks. More beautiful, true, and beloved. Amen.